All right, we're going to turn in our scripture reading to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, we're looking at the Lord's Prayer. We talked about the context last week. And a famous passage of scripture, very familiar to all of us. Matthew's rendition in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke here records for us on a different occasion a little slightly different in uh, Luke's presentation of the Lord's Prayer, a little bit shorter and a little different word order, um, but um, you still have it recorded for us. Kids are great in their understanding of church and things of the Lord at times. Uh, just coming down on their level and um, in hearing their comments about uh, church can really educate us on on uh, how well we are speaking and how well we are doing our service. Some misunderstanding of children that often come um, with uh, prayers and verses. And several kids made comments at one time uh, that I've recorded uh, some of these that I have found about the Lord's Prayer. Uh, one child uh, was praying the Lord's Prayer and came to the portion in the prayer and said, Give us this steak and daily bread. And forgive us of our mattresses. Another child said, Father who art in heaven, how did you know my name? <laughs> uh, another little girl prayed out over her food, um, forgive us this day our jelly bread. And uh, so I remember one time at uh, Fort McCoy, I was called for probably around Memorial Day, I believe it was, a prayer breakfast on the facility put up by uh, the, the garrison chaplain. And uh, the governor was, of Wisconsin was going to be there. And uh, so I attended, attended with, uh, I think Josh May uh, was a part of that, invited me to come on to, uh, for lunch and prayer. And uh, I remember standing there and all of the pastors and the bishops, the priests, and a rabbi uh, that was standing in line ready to say their prayers at the service, all these different denominations and religious leaders up there praying and taking their turn of all the kinds of prayers that were prayed in that service. I, I knew that there were probably only one or two that God actually heard in that service uh, that day. But um, interesting, what... Someone once said that many Christians offer their prayers like sailors use their pumps. Only when the ship starts to sink is when we pray. Why do so few of us pray? We were challenged last week in our prayer life. Because I think one of the reasons is we get just too busy to pray. There's so much going on in our day and our time and we just don't have time to pray. We don't see the importance of it until we start to sink. And then we pull out our prayers. I believe also another reason that we don't pray is because Satan knows it works. And one of, that, one of the areas in our life as Christians and as believers that the devil is going to attack is going to be our prayer life because he knows prayer reaches the heart of God. The Lord Jesus Christ on 40 days in the wilderness where he was fasting and praying finds the devil who tempts him over and over again when he's in the garden of Gethsemane and he's in prayer before the night of his or the morning of his crucifixion there it, it, the devil is is bringing a a heavy burden upon him and a temptation to him in his life in his prayer life the devil hates it when we pray. So if any area of our life is going to be attacked, it'll be that personal prayer time. I think another reason so few of us pray is because maybe we don't know how to pray. We know we should pray. We know Jesus prayed. We know it's a command for us to pray, but we don't know how to pray. Have you ever wondered if you're praying right? If, if your prayer is... You know, did you, did you say the right things? Did you do the right things? Have you ever, I, I admit, there's been times that I've wondered about my prayer life. And, and was I praying right? We talked last week about some, some dangers of prayer. Um, I don't want to pray wrong. I don't want to uh, fall into the dangers of prayer. 
And if you're a disciple of Jesus and you want to grow in the Lord, a key aspect to your spiritual growth in your maturity is you have to learn how to pray. At the end of Luke chapter 2, we've got a description of Mary and Martha and Mary's uh, choice to sit at the feet of Jesus and soak in the Word of God to be obedient and a worshiper of God. And Martha finds it busy to do other things than seeing the priority of growing in her discipleship through the Word and the power of God's Word. Now, in Luke chapter 11, the disciples understand for, us, for them to grow in discipleship, for them to mature in their spiritual walk with the Lord, they've got to have a vibrant prayer life. And so they come to Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. I admire some men of prayer in my life. Just like the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. The disciples admired John the Baptist because he was a man of prayer. Um, there was a man when I was a boy uh, in our church. He wasn't a deacon. He, was, he actually lived in a nursing home. He was 96 years old. His name was M.K. Morgan. And I remember at 9 o'clock in the morning before Sunday school, my, we would gather together in a prayer room off to the side, just a small little closet room where some men would pray and I was probably five, six years old, and I would go in there with my dad, and four or five of these men would get down, and this 90-year-old man would get down on his knees, and he would weep and pray. It was almost like he was talking to God. I remember Dr. Cummins. Many of you may remember him when he prayed, his deep voice, and he would pray, and it was almost like he was, he was speaking to God in the room. I love to be around men who know how to pray. They're not fake and phony with their prayers. I'm saddened that so many believers don't like to pray. I understand why some may get embarrassed in a crowd such as this. But if you pray often personally, then you should not be embarrassed to pray publicly. How to pray. This prayer comes in the context, as we saw last week, of an everyday life in Jesus. He always prayed. This was something he did on a regular basis, and the disciples saw that. So this prayer, this Lord's Prayer, comes in the context of Jesus' daily pattern of praying. It also comes in the context of the question from the disciples. It prompted them to ask the Savior, Lord, teach us. It, it comes after thinking about John and his life of prayer. Last week, we went over to Matthew chapter 6, and we saw the warnings about praying in a wrong manner, in a wrong way. The wrong way to play, pray is like the Pharisees who were hypocritical in their prayers. There was no heart. There was no relationship with God. They were out for mere praise of men and a pat on the back, which is why they went to the street corner in the most public place, and they prayed these long prayers where everyone could hear. So that in the end, they would have, Jesus said, their reward. They wanted everyone to see them. We can also pray in a wrong way when we pray like the heathen, Jesus says. When we use repetitious, meaningless, and thoughtless words. This was all just about a duty. Let's get through this little prayer so that we can move on to other things. They didn't care about what they said or about who they were saying it to. It was just a religious cliche, a religious duty, a thoughtless prayer. You see, the right way to pray is to pray in sincerity, genuineness of our heart and our thoughts. We pray with a heart and mind that is focused, a heart that is real with the Lord. Prayer with a, a thoughtful communication with God. It is dependence upon the Lord. That's what prayer is. God, I need you. Not coming to Him saying the same thing over and over again so that we can move on, but coming to Him in, in His presence with a relationship to grow and know Him. Jesus says, when you pray... When you pray, that's verse 2, look down on it. He said unto them, when you pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What we see this morning is the Lord gives a pattern 
a pattern. The, the disciple who asked, we're not told the name of the disciple. Was it Peter? Was it John? Was it James? We're not, we're not told. But one of the disciples got the courage enough as they were probably talking around about John's praying and Jesus coming back from his prayer. One of the disciples said, well, I'll speak up. All the others were thinking the same thing. And so they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And, and uh, it, it, was he asking for a pre-written a prayer that he could pray. He doesn't say, teach us a prayer. He says, teach us to pray. This man was asking for a pattern, a guideline, and I believe that's what Jesus gives. So this pattern, what we would call the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer, this was not necessarily intended by Jesus for the disciples to just say repetitiously over and over again to fall in the very trap that he had warned them about in Matthew chapter 6. Can you say the Lord's Prayer, either here in Luke 11 or in Matthew 6, and say it with a hypocritical spirit? The answer is yes. It's happening probably all over churches around the world today where people will get up and say the Lord's Prayer because they've had it memorized but have no relationship with God at all. There are others who may stand up today or may say it in a congregation just repeating it as a liturgical thing that they do in the service over and over again with no thought of the words that they're saying. Jesus is not telling these men to get into the wrong way of praying. Interesting, historically, by the second century, a document had already been written in the early church commanding all Christians to recite the Lord's Prayer three times a day. How long do you think it took the early church members to begin saying the Lord's Prayer hypocritically and meaningless? Three times a day? One author stated a prayer he used to pray over and over again, bless this bunch before we munch. You know, the other prayers that you would learn as a child, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray thy Lord my soul to keep. Sometimes we, we teach our children, or you may teach your children, kind of like a catechism or a type of prayer that they would pray. Listen, I'm not against saying the Lord's Prayer. I, I believe that we can recite word for word the Lord's Prayer, much like what we would do with Scripture when we would quote Psalm 23 together. It's a good um, reminder of, of words, of, of verses that we ought to hide in our heart. I think when we quote Scripture, whether it's a prayer or not a prayer, it is good corporately for us often to say, saying the Lord's Prayer word for word is not what Jesus is specifically commanding. Jesus is speaking about a pattern. In Matthew, he says, pray in this manner. The word manner means in this way, not word for word. But here is a model, here is a type. When you pray, pray in this type of way. Think about these things. So Luke shows us again Jesus' prayer in this passage, even though it's not word for word, even compared to Matthew's rendition of the prayer. It's still important for us to see. It's called the Lord's Prayer. But it would be better probably titled the Disciples' Prayer. Jesus would have not have needed to pray some of these types of things. Jesus never had to pray, forgive us our debts. Jesus never had to pray that. He was perfect with the Father at all times. Lead us not into temptation. The Lord Jesus Christ could not sin. However, the indication of this is that Jesus is giving for his disciples a prayer of categories for them to think about in their prayer life. So, you want to know how to pray? Not a prayer to pray, but how to pray and grow in your relationship. Then take this prayer that Jesus prayed and see the categories of where he wants our thinking, our thoughts, and our words to be when we pray. I remember when I was a teenager on a New Year's Eve service that we had. We had a pray the night through, pray into the new year. 
We had a sign-up sheet a few weeks in advance, and people in the church would sign up for 30-minute slots. I think it was 30 minutes or an hour slot that, that we were to pray, starting at like 11 o'clock, 12, uh, 10, 11 o'clock at the night, and then going to about 6 in the morning. And uh, we, would, we would all get in together, and, uh, and, and people were in the auditorium throughout all of the night during that time. There were people praying at, and, and all through into the new year. And we were given a sample sheet of things that we were to pray for, like a prayer list that was given. And we would go in there and and we would read down and and pray through a a list of some things, some categories that we would pray through, praying for our government, praying for our church, praying for our leadership in our our church, and praying for Sunday school classes and and, uh, giving thanks to God. And so what I want you to see is when Jesus gives this model prayer in this manner, when you pray, He's giving a sample list. This is where I want your thoughts to be focused When you pray, and he situates some words, Matthew records 70 words, Luke is much shorter in this prayer, but it is to give us a focus and attention to think about these types of things. So I want to start off here by just taking our attention to the person of prayer. When we start our prayers, you want to know how to pray? Pray by praising God. For who he is. That is our focus and our attention. And the relationship that you should have with him. So let's look here. We're just basically going to see the first two phrases in, uh, in the King James. We made mention about the fact that if you have another translation besides the New King James or the King James. Some of these phrases are omitted because there's some differences in the text uh, in the manuscript family. It's not an issue. It's in Matthew 6. It can be in here in this place as well. I choose to take this reading uh, from the King James as we see this. Our Father which art in heaven. Our Father, which art in heaven. Notice that Jesus personalizes this prayer. Our Father. Now, I want to address here uh, something that is a term that is used and imbues the fatherhood of God. Some are confused about this phrase, Father. Yes, God is the creator of all people. And in that sense, He is the originator of mankind. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 28, when Paul is standing on Mars Hill in Athens, he he addresses the pagans there to an unknown God. And he says in Acts 17, 28, For we are all His offspring. In other words, Paul's using it as an evangelistic tool saying, He is the Creator and we all come from Him. And it is by Him that all things are created. He is the originator of all things. He is the Creator. In the Old and New Testament, when God is referenced as the Creator of all things and all people, He is always referenced as the Almighty, the God, or Lord. But He's never referred to as Father of all things. He is also never called in the Bible our mother. He's never given the title mother. He has given characteristics of a mother as he cares for his children, but he is never called mother. There's a blasphemous context that is going around in our modern day today of this gender confusion and this divine feminine. There's a translation that is out there that will take the Bible and turn all the he's in reference to God and change it up and also call him her or she. That's blasphemous to the character of God. He is always referenced in the scripture with male pronouns and with male names or in this way a father. In the Old Testament, seven times he's called father. All of those times is in reference in a national way to the people of Israel, not in a personal way. Yet Jesus addresses God as Father 165 times in the New Testament. 
We have 39 books in the Old Testament and he's only called Father seven times. We have four Gospels. And 165 times Jesus references him as Father. In other words, there is a, an address that Jesus wants us to understand in our relationship with God. He can be called Father. But whose Father is He? He's not everyone's Father. Not everyone can pray the Lord's Prayer, Our Father. But Jesus is clear that those who are, are still in their original sin are not the Father, are not the children of God the Father, but in fact are the children of the devil. John chapter 8 and verse 44, he tells the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil. In Ephesians chapter 2, twice in, that, in those few verses, it calls us or those who don't know Christ and those who don't have a relationship with God the Father as those who are children of disobedience or children of divine wrath. The nature of the evil one. You see, we are all born into sin. We are born into this, in, into this life by nature, children of the devil. For all have sinned, the Bible says, and come short of the glory of God. And if you are a child of the devil, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then you cannot call God your Father. And so this prayer, our Father, which art in heaven, is specifically tied to those who have been born into His family and have the right and privilege to say, Father. You say, this morning, Pastor... How then do I become a child of God? That is exactly what Jesus is drawing attention to before you ever pray the Lord's Prayer. You better make sure that you are able and have the right to call Him your Father. This is the question that must be answered on the outset of prayer. You cannot pray this prayer until first He is your Father. Some event must happen in your life. It must take place in your life where then you can call Him your Father. It doesn't just happen. It's not at your baptism. It's not because you have Christian parents. It's not a, a quota that you meet by attending church so many times and then you cross the line and now you're in the family of God or that you've done some amount of good works and you've fed the poor and you've given them an, enough of this and, and, that, and now all of a sudden that event crossed because you met some quota. That's not, what it hap that's not what happens by which you can call God your Father. Turn over in the, in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. Paul addresses this of those who are able to call God Father in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 in verse 14, he says this, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So in Romans 8 and verse 14, the ones who are the sons of God, who can call God their Father, are the ones who are led by the Spirit. Well, how are we led by the Spirit? Look in verse 15. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 17, and if children, then we're heirs. And if heirs of God, then we're joint heirs with Christ. That means we're brothers with Christ. And if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also glorified together. Now what Paul is saying in this verse is he's bringing us to the place where you have to have a born again experience. You must be adopted into the family of God to have the right and privilege to be an heir and to be a son of the Father. Jesus talked to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 about what it means to be in the family of God when he told that religious man who, who as a Pharisee and, and of the Sanhedrin had a lot, of, a lot of good moral background, a lot of good works that he had in his life. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the Ten Commandments. And Jesus reminded him for him to be able to be accepted into the kingdom of God, he must be born again. Paul reiterates this in this passage. Look over to Galatians. 
Uh, Galatians chapter 4 addresses this, um, this question as well about God as Father. How do we become uh, in, in the family sons of God? Galatians 4 and verse 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son. So God the Father sent His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Notice verse 5, to redeem. Here's the purpose that He sent His Son, to redeem them. That means purchase them. That means buy them back that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because, in verse 6 of Galatians 4, and because uh, you are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts where you then can cry, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but you're a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Jesus Christ. So the answer to that question is, how do you become a child of God? Is you must be born into God's family. Fine states this word, Abba, is a word framed by the lips of an infant child. The very first thing, it's like this babble that comes out of their mouth. The term father expresses an intelligent uh, uh, apprehension of a relationship. And when you take this term Abba and Father and put them together, it expresses love and intelligence and confidence as a child of God. John 1 in verse 12 says this. In fact, I think it would be good for us to see that. Turn over to the Gospel of John. John chapter 1. In verse 12, here's the answer to be able to be called the Son of God. He's talking about Jesus coming in as the light into the world. In verse 10 it says, And He was in the world, and the world was made by Him. There's the Creator. But the world knew Him not. And He came to His own, and His own received Him not. There's a rejection of Jesus. Notice verse 12. But as many as receive Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even them that believe on His name. There is the, 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 the crux of coming into the family of God. Those who receive Him. Those who believe on His name. Jesus said it this way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father but by me. The way you become into the family of God is you accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5 says, There is only one mediator between God and man, and it is the man Christ Jesus. So I want to ask you this morning, do you know Jesus as your personal Savior? Because you cannot call God your Father until first you receive His Son. There is no relationship with God as Father until you first receive His Son. And if you've rejected His Son, the Scripture says, He that hath the Son hath life, but he that hath not the Son hath not life. It comes down, it's black or white. You either have Jesus and you're a Son of God, and you can call Him your Father, or you do not have Jesus because you've rejected His Son and you're choosing your own way. Has there been a time in your life where you accepted Christ? You cannot pray this prayer in good faith without having the right to be able to call God your Father. And you cannot call God your Father without receiving Jesus as your Son. The song that we sing, My God is Reconciled, his pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for His child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. Can you say that? First John 3 and verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. One of the most tender um, uh, terms that tugs my heart from my children is when they call me daddy. 
I remember one of the first times that my first child called me daddy, just a little, it was, it was out of a desperation. It was one night in uh, the crib, and uh, you know, you get the gates that are, that are around the crib, and it goes up and down, and we had the little pads that had kind of gone around so that the protection of the, of the little one, but uh, some, somehow he had started moving around a little bit in that crib, and was, I put him down, and he was kind of n- nestling down to go to sleep, and uh, I walked into the living room and was waiting for just a little bit and, and uh, turned on the television. And all of a sudden, you know, you, parents can hear the squirming and the, and the crying. That's just, I don't want to go to sleep. And then it changes to a different type of cry. And you know there's a problem. This is different. All of a sudden, I heard out a cry that, that was a cry of desperation. And I heard, Daddy, Daddy. And I got up and ran into the room and realized that his little foot had been caught in between the bars. And he was pulling. And, and he was stuck. And he didn't know what was happening. Out of desperation, he cried out, Daddy. My heart leapt. But also was encouraged that he would cry out in a relationship to know that I could take care of him. One of my girls, when she comes to me and gives me a hug around my neck and says, Daddy, I love you. Another one of my girls, when, when I go, I, it always encourages me to come and says, Daddy, can I go with you? And then my youngest who comes and says, Daddy, will you play with me? All of those connections of those children in different situations and scenarios that would bring to my heart a relationship. They are my children and I am their father. If a neighborhood kid came around the corner and said, Daddy, can I go with you? I would look down and say, who do you think you are? <laughs> say, who are you calling me Daddy. You know, or, or daddy, it's time to eat. Or daddy, will you, will you pay for, for me something to eat? Or can I get this toy? If it's a stranger, you have no relationship, you don't have a responsibility. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior this morning, you have no right to call God your Father until you first receive His Son. And the privilege of being able to stand before God and call Him Daddy Abba. It's a privilege that comes with the children of God who have received His Son and become adopted into His family. Not only does this phrase, Father, um, bring to us a relationship, but it also draws us into His nature and His location. If you notice, as it says here in the verse, if you move back to Luke chapter 11, as He says in this verse, Our Father, which art in heaven... This speaks of his nature first, and then it speaks of his location. It's the kid who, again, got the prayer wrong when he said, Our Father who does art in heaven. Well, God does have a handiwork, and he is making a masterpiece. And I'm sure he does a type of art in heaven. But that's not what the prayer says. Remember, he is a heavenly Father. This is contrasted to an earthly Father. Father. He is a Father who is from heaven. That's where, he, that's where He is. But that is also His nature of who He is. He is very different than what we would know as earthly fathers. God is personal like an earthly father so that we can call Him Abba. But He is much more than that. He loves us. He's not a hideous monster that's up there waiting for us to to disobey or do something wrong so then that He can strike us. He is a father who is filled with love. We hear of stories of earthly fathers who scream and yell who come home drunkards, who lay on the couch while their children run the roost, fathers who love their buddies more than their children, fathers who run around with other women besides their mother, and fathers who love their jobs and hobbies and cars and boats and fishing poles and guns and toys much more than their family. We all hear of fathers who have abandoned their children, who've cheated on their wives, who've run the house with selfish motives, and who have brought so much hurt. Even the most godly father earthly father is going to make mistakes and lose his cool at times. You see, there is no perfect human father. 
But God is not like a human father. He loves. His nature is love. A heavenly father who has come down to this earth in a personal way. Do you remember what Philip said in John chapter 14 when he said, Jesus, show us the father. And it will suffice us. That means it will be enough. All we want to do is see the Father. And Jesus responded to Philip and to the disciples and said this, If you have seen me, then you've seen the Father. What was he saying? Yes, he and his Father were one. But the characteristics, the nature, how Jesus demonstrated, how Jesus interacted with people and sinners and fishermen and those around, how Jesus lived his life, he was showing the Father before him. And just like they were being with Jesus and how Jesus interacted with them was how the Heavenly Father interacts with them as well. That was encouraging because they loved to be around Jesus. He was their Savior. In John 14, they were sad because He was leaving. You see, God is unique in that He is great and that He can be approached and that He loves and He shows us. Even though He is in heaven, He wants to be close to His children. And Jesus' view of the Father was that of tenderness and love. I can't help but think about when I think about the story of the Father, when Jesus gives us a description or a parable about the Father that shows up in Luke chapter 15 when He talks about the prodigal son. And there the Father whose arms are open with love and care as that son who has walked away and run away from the Father, He is there welcoming Him back, running to Him and kissing Him. And when Jesus gives a description of the Father in the Gospels, He gives it to them of a Father who longs for a relationship with His children. A heavenly Father not only shows us His love, but it also shows us His power you see, many earthly fathers have failed because they're too weak. Many earthly fathers cannot save their children from sickness and cancer and car accidents and the upsets of life. Earthly fathers cannot take the sin away from their children and the consequences of sin. Earthly fathers cannot bring their sons back to life. I'm reminded of the father Jairus who ran to the Lord Jesus and fell on his face and pleaded with Jesus that he would come to his house and raise or heal his daughter. Why? Because this earthly father could not do anything about it. And yet, when we think about our father who is in heaven, it not only shows us where God is, but it brings us to this idea and this concept of how powerful and the authority Authority that he has. The word heaven reminds us of God's authority and power. This speaks of his transcendent nature above all of the heavens. He is seated where? On his throne. Not David's throne, but the throne of the universe. The one seen in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. The one talked about in Psalm 46 and verse 8. God reigneth over the heavens. God sits upon the throne of His holiness. He is great over all of the earth, David says. You see, this eternal Father in His eternal heaven has an eternal unlimited resource of power and authority. And when you think of God as our Father, think of God who is willing to give us the riches of His heaven that we need. Later, Jesus will say, you think of earthly fathers that care for their children. Our Father knows all our needs. And if well, earthly Father will give to His children what is needed, how much more will your heavenly Father? John 14 Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. So, as we see this phrase, who art in heaven, just as we conclude and we, we think about this, not only does the, the location, the, the heaven bring about what kind of Father He is, but it also tells us where our Father is. Have you ever thought about heaven before? I think in your prayer life, Jesus is given a pattern that when we pray, we give praise to God. We ought to think eternally. 
We ought to think about heaven and where God is. It will come up again later in the prayer when he talks about um, his kingdom. And then later when he, when, he, uh, when he concludes that prayer in Matthew chapter 6. For thine is the kingdom. You ever thought about where heaven is? What heaven is? Is it an actual place or is it a condition of thought? Listen, heaven is real. Do you know that Jesus never spoke of heaven in, in a vague fashion like it was some idea of peace? He talked about it as a place where his father was, where he came from, where he was going, and where we could all go to. It was just like it was down the road. It was a real place. The Anglo-Saxon word heaven means to be lifted up. The term was used of this place of God in the English, heaven, uh, English language as the place that was lifted up from earth. It is not from down here, but from up there. That's why often when we talk about heaven, for some reason, we point up. I mean, heaven up there and hell down there. This is, it's this kind of location. Why? Because the term in the English language means up. Means up, all right? So does that mean, you know, for, for those who are in China, that it's down for us? No, no, no. It is, it's just, a, it's just an, a, a word that gives us a, a description of where it is. However, the Scripture talks about three parts of heaven. Did you know that? This word, heaven, is used in three different ways in the Bible. First, it's used as in, a, in, in context to the clouds or what we would see as the atmosphere. Isaiah 55 and verse 10 says, As the rain comes down and the snow falls from heaven. Snow comes from heaven. Does it come from you know, the heavenly throne? No, no, it's talking about that which is in the sky. The second word that is used, or second way that the word heaven is described, is in the term of outer space. The sun, moon, stars. The far-flung galaxies. That which we see on the Hubble telescope and the other telescopes that are out there. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. So, not only is it where the snow comes from and the rain comes from, but it's also out there in the galaxies. The heavens declare the glory of God. And then there is a third level of heaven. Paul wrote about this level in 2 Corinthians 12 in verse 2 when he actually was caught up in what he calls the third heaven. It's referenced again in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, for all those great people of faith who were looking for another country, and Hebrews says, a heavenly place. A place not like this. A different place. It was called the place where the, where the saints desired to look for. John calls it in the book of Revelation, the new Jerusalem, or the eternal city. And he was transported into heaven with a detailed description in chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation. We read some of that the other day. You see, our Father can be enjoyed as we see His handiwork in creation around us and the far reaches of space. But He dwells in a real place on a real throne and when we pray, our prayers ascend into His place where He is our Father who is in heaven. You know, I wish the Bible told us a whole lot more about heaven. I was just thinking about if how do I in words described for you the first time I saw the Grand Canyon. Many of you that have been to the Rockies or if you've been to the Alps in Europe. In words, how do I describe for you what I saw? It's difficult until you see it yourself. You see, Jesus is teaching his disciples to address God as Father and wants us to understand that we have a relationship with that God and we can address Him as Father if you've received His Son. 
He also wants us to remind us who He is. Jesus is causing us at the beginning of this prayer to focus our thought on the nature and character of God. Our prayer life ought to reflect the right doctrine of who God is. Before we ever begin to pray, we better know who we are praying to. What He can do for us and the power and authority and the location that He's in. A right belief of God. You see, this prayer opens up with us paying tribute to God who sits on His throne. I've been to a few castles in my travels. I've been to a few throne rooms in my travels where kings have sat. I've been to Windsor Palace. I've been to the gates of Buckingham Palace. I've been to the Tower of London. There's a throne room in the Tower of London. But I remember as I was walking through Westminster Abbey, in the back corner of the Abbey, in a glass case, there's an old chair. It's made of wood. It doesn't look flashy. There's no gold on it at all. It actually has carving, graffiti, that has been carved in with a knife or some kind of stone on portions of it. It looks very uncomfortable. I would never want to sit on it. But obviously it holds a prominent place. It was built in 1296 by King Edward I. It is called the Coronation Chair. And on May 6, 2023, this chair was taken, taken out of that glass case and for the first time in 70 years, it was refurbished and placed in the center of Westminster Abbey. Where in front of the eyes of 20 million people on television, King Charles III was crowned King of England. And he sat on a throne that every monarch since 1296 had sat on to be crowned. And all the people in the building chanted, God save the king. We as believers, because of the access of Jesus Christ, can come into the throne room presence of the king of the universe and call him father. And we pay Him tribute because we owe Him everything. And I ask you this morning, do you know Him as your Father? You've been introduced to Him today as Creator of the universe. That's who He is, whether you're His Son or not. But God wants to enter into a personal relationship with you that you can call Him Abba, Father, Daddy. But you have to pay Him tribute. You have to recognize His Son, receive His Son. And then as a believer, how, how foolish we are when we go straight to our wants and our needs in our prayer, like we are demanding the, the very one who sits in heaven on the throne of this universe, telling Him what we want Him to do for us. How do you come into the presence of a monarch? You come in the spirit of tribute, owing him to Him the glory and the honor. What a privilege it is. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, would you accept Christ so that you can know the Father in heaven? And if you do know Him in your prayer, count it a privilege this week. When you pray, and you pray through these things, pray in praise to the Father who sits on His throne in heaven. And get a wonder and an awe that He allows you to come into His presence. Put His arm around you and encourage you and love you and bring you close. If we will draw nigh to Him, He's given us His promise. He will draw nigh to us. Our Father, which art in heaven. Father, thank You that in this, this auditorium on this day that Your children either corporately in this fashion or privately can bow our heads and our hearts and literally talk 
to the creator of the universe as father. What a privilege. And you long to hear us. What a sad thing when your children go through a whole day and don't say one time, Daddy, I love you. I want you to be with me. I want you to play with me. I need your help. Lord, maybe there are some believers this week that in their prayer life, their, li- their prayer life was, was all focused on themselves, their wants, their needs, their desires, their sicknesses, their issues. And, and they failed to come before you and praise you for who you are and where you are. We need to change our prayer life a little bit right at the beginning. We need to focus more on praise to the Lord. And what a great week for us to be able to do that during Thanksgiving. That every day that we pray, we would give glory and honor to you. And Lord, if there is someone today that was listening, either online or in the service, and their heart was convicted because they pray the Lord's Prayer, but they know deep down they don't have a relationship with you. They're a sinner, and in their sin, they've been separated from you, and, and they need to trust Christ as their Savior. Would they not leave the building today, whether it's a child or an adult or, or grandparent or, or whatever the circumstance may be, that they would trust Christ as their Savior? With heads bowed and eyes closed, would you stand to your feet before we're dismissed? I'd like Stephanie to play a song of invitation. We're not going to sing, but as she plays, maybe the Lord has convicted you about your prayer life this week. Maybe your disrespect to God the Father. Maybe your lack of gratitude to what He has done, even for who He is in your life. Would you recognize Him where He sits? that He's preparing a place for you and would you have a spirit of praise and gratitude? Could be this week you need to write down a prayer list and put some of these categories down and in your prayer just practically pray first a praise to who God is and what He's done. As she plays through, God is working in your heart. Go to Him, seek forgiveness. He's willing and ready to forgive those of his children and if you don't know Christ you can walk the aisle we've got a staff to be able to pray with you I'd love to pray with you or we can meet you in the lobby afterwards we'd love to share with you how you can know God as your heavenly father and Jesus as your savior I'm going to ask you to play through one more time speaks about us coming to the Lord just as we are. It means humbled, a sinner in need of a Savior. And this love that God has offered us, He longs for us to, to receive Him on His terms.